Please take your Bibles and turn back to our first reading in the prophecy of Isaiah. And this afternoon we continue in our exposition of this Old Testament prophecy, the book of Isaiah. Uh, we come in the Lord's providence to chapter 11 and to the beginning of that chapter we'll be meditating upon verses 1 to 9. So Isaiah 11 verses 1 to 9. We've read the whole chapter a moment ago, and it opens with these words. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the only mediator between God and man. He is the man, Christ Jesus. He is called Christ because he is the Messiah. He's called both Messiah and Christ because he is the anointed one. And as such, he, he comes forth executing his offices as prophet, priest, and king. If we were to cast our eye around uh, our own country here in the United, these United States and were to survey as best we can, which of these three offices was given the most attention, I think it would be fair to conclude that his priestly office uh, would be the answer. There is, we thank the Lord, a great deal of preaching uh, about uh, Christ as priest and as the sacrifice and his atoning and dying love, and it is impossible for that ever to be spoken about too much, too often. Uh, we wish that it would be declared to every creature under heaven. But in thinking about these, these offices, it may be also safe to conclude that his office as king is an office which is far less frequently spoken of. That Christ's kingship is not, uh, to the degree that we believe it ought to be, a part of the diet of the preaching of, of God's word. And it is to the peril of souls, and it is to the peril of the church as a whole to not hear more and more often about the glorious reign of our glorious Redeemer as a great king. And isn't it interesting that, that this is actually the note with which Jesus himself began? Because when he came onto the stage of his earthly ministry, he came forth preaching the kingdom. It's the first thing that we're told. It was put at the fore. He was preaching the kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And a kingdom requires a king, and it was the king himself that came to speak of that kingdom. You think of all the parables that he gives us with regards to the kingdom and so on. We could say much more on this theme, but enough. Uh, suffice it to say that, that this office of Jesus Christ as king is indispensable to his glory and to the good of his people. And so here we are in Isaiah, and we're in the context of a lot of upheaval. We've been noting the historical context as we've come along, and we'll note it more in a moment. But the Lord gives a word from heaven through the voice of his prophet to his people in this rather scattered and shattered context in which they find themselves in. And when he brings that word here in this portion, he brings a word about himself, about the Redeemer who's to come, 
and about him as a king. We have the universal kingdom of God on earth that is being set before us. And this would have been to them like news from a foreign land, so incongruous with what they could see and understand at the time. But it was a word that brought light and hope. It's a word that, if received with faith, would have raised the heart and soul in anticipation of all that the Lord had promised and indeed would do for his, his people. So as we consider these, these nine verses together, we're going to consider three things. Uh, the title of our sermon is The Branch Anointed by the Spirit. Here we're thinking of uh, Christ's reign as king. And we begin, first of all, with uh, the origins that are described here in verses 1, 2, and the beginning of verse 3. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord, and he shall, he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, and so on. So we begin where the passage begins in verse 1. This is a description of the Messiah. This is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've already heard about him in chapter 9 and verse 6. This is the child that is to be born. This is the son uh, that is to be given. Uh, the one on whom the government will be upon his shoulders. Uh, the increase of his government and his peace shall know no end. And so we've heard already about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in this capacity, and it picks up really with what we saw in, in chapter 9. You'll note here that there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now we've heard in recent chapters, uh, including the previous chapter in chapter 10, we've heard about Ahaz, king of Judah. We've heard about the threats that Judah was facing with regards to Israel to the north and Syria, which is even further to the north. We've heard God's word being brought to him and what God through Isaiah had commanded and counseled him. And despite all of this, Ahaz uh, cries out for help from Assyria, not from Jehovah, but from Assyria. And he had been warned against this. One of the things that we saw is that Assyria is described as a rod. But in this case, Assyria is described as a rod of God's chastening. He uses Assyria to chasten his people. And in turn, he will turn on Assyria in order to, to punish them. So we've already covered uh, that ground. But you hold that in your mind when you come to this particular passage, because now he's speaking of another. He's speaking of the use of the word rod, but uh, another rod of a totally different character uh, altogether. He's speaking of Jesus Christ as the rod out of the stem of Jesse. And so you, you think here of, you know, the, the Lord comes and he whacks down the forest with all of its vast cedars and and oaks and all of the other trees that are sycamores and so on. And he cuts it to the ground so that it's littered like with matchsticks and there's nothing left but stumps. And you think this is desolation. This is, this is devastation 
Look at what's happened. Look at what the Lord has done, will do with regards to his people. And here he says there is a shoot that will come from the stump of, if you will, a felled tree. So a stump that is left, that has been felled in the forest. There's going to be a shoot that springs up from it. It's going to come from the roots of Jesse himself. A branch will come out of these roots. And so what is it? It's a picture of in the face of death, in the face of of things being wiped out, annihilated. Here you have a picture of life, fresh life, right? A shoot is springing up. Here is a picture of renewal, of recovery, of hope, of blessing, and so on. And it's interesting that Isaiah is not alone writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to speak of Christ as a branch. We get it in Jeremiah as well. We get it in Zechariah too, where the name branch is ascribed to our Lord Jesus Christ. And he comes, as the passage says, from he will come from Jesse's house. David's not mentioned here, interestingly. His father, who is a more obscure figure, though well known in the scriptures, is the one that's mentioned. It's from Jesse's house. But it is, in essence, the same. He's an offshoot of, of David, the great king of, of Old Testament Israel, the one whom God came and made a covenant with, that Davidic covenant that we see uh, articulated in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The Lord's coming and he's saying, I haven't forgotten the, the, the bonds of that oath and covenant which were pledged in the days of David with David regarding his seed. Lots of time has passed. The scenes have changed dramatically since those days. All of the circumstances would appear radically different. And the Lord is coming. He's saying, I haven't forgotten my covenant. I haven't forgotten my word of promise. That pledge is going to be kept. The promise is going to be fulfilled. And there is going to be a seed that sits upon David's throne. It will be David's son, but David's son will be David's Lord. It'll be the son of David who is far greater than David. And he will ascend that throne and reign forevermore. He will be the king to which all of the Old Testament kings, including David, could only in a, in a, in a partial way point. Right? This is one of the things you get when you're reading through First and Second Kings and First uh, and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Because you have king after king after king, Judah, Israel, or before that, before the divided kingdom, even David and Solomon. And in each of those cases, you're left with the conclusion, he's not the one. We have some good kings, but they too had their faults. A lot of bad kings. And in each case, it's kind of drilled into your head and heart over and over again. He's not the one, which is to say, the king, the promised king, the promised seed, is still coming. He hasn't come yet. And with each successive generation of fallen kings in both north and south, there's this sense of building momentum. And for the believing exercised Israelite, a growing crave that the Lord would at last fulfill his word 
and give to his people the king who was yet to come. That's where we find ourselves. And he's saying here, he's coming yet. He's reassuring them. He, the, the, David's son, who is David's Lord, is yet coming. And in verse 2, it says, In the spirit of the Lord, or the spirit of Jehovah, shall rest upon him. This is one of the marks of the coming of this king. We'll see it again in, in Jeremiah, or excuse me, in Isaiah 61, verse 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ too in chapter 61. And, and so when we come to the Gospels and Jesus in the early days of his ministry goes up into the synagogue and uh, the, the word of God is given to him, he opens to Isaiah. And he reads that passage, that latter passage from Isaiah. And he says, this day these words are fulfilled. The reference to, to himself as the one upon whom the Spirit would rest. Who would be anointed from heaven by the Holy Spirit. Now we saw this in our New Testament reading. In the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 32. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same is he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, as Christ, as the Anointed One, is preeminently anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now, you know well enough that we could have a whole long series of sermons that are restricted to this one point, the relationship of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit during his earthly ministry. Right? That would require a lengthy uh, series of sermons. And those of you who have read, for example, in the works of John Owen, know how vast uh, that whole terrain is and all that there is to see. But we, we recognize even at a passing level, you see that it is the Spirit who conceives uh, the Lord Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And we can, from that point, every stage and part of his ministry, all the way through to the end, is marked by references to the ministry of the Spirit in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That includes coming up to the culmination, as we'll see in our exposition of Hebrews 9, even on the cross, the ministry of the Spirit, resurrection, the ministry of the Spirit, and so on. We, of course, have Pentecost and all that comes after his, his ascension, but this is essential to our understanding. We have the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, undivided in their being, and in their glory and in their majesty. And when the second person of the Godhead uh, condescends to assume into union with his person a, a human nature, he as God-man, so we're speaking of him as the mediator, as the God-man, he receives 
the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit comes and descends upon him, or as our passage says, rests upon him and remains upon him. And so it is the Spirit at work in, with, by, through the God-man that we see at work in, in and throughout the whole of the four, four Gospels. And that includes, with that gift, the gift of the Spirit, the preeminent gift, come as a consequence a variety of gifts. And that's described here in verses 2 and 3. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. Right? These are the gifts that flow from the singular and greatest gift of the Holy Spirit himself. And so we have these things, the wisdom, knowledge, and counsel, and might, and so on. They're all outflows. They're flowing out of the work of the Spirit of Jehovah upon uh, the God-man himself. And of course, when he ascends to heaven, uh, at last he's given the, the fullness of the Spirit, which he pours out. And there are many, many references to various aspects uh, of that. But you think, for example, in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verse 6, which is not one of the ones that you would first go to, it speaks of him uh, as a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth, right? The seven spirits is a metaphorical language, apocalyptic language that described the fullness of the spirit, right? He's one with the fullness, the totality of of the Holy Spirit. And as you, you, you read elsewhere, even just restricting yourself to the Old Testament, you see the connection between the gift and gifts, between the giving of the Spirit and these other type of gifts that are described here. So Daniel, we're told, is one in whom this was the Spirit of the Holy God. And it was recognized by his skill, right? By his wisdom, his spiritual discernment, his ability to to interpret dreams, his ability to do what all the wisest wise men were unable to do in Babylon, and all of the most gifted brass of academia and scholarship were unable to touch. Daniel was able to do because in him dwelt the spirit of Jehovah and these gifts uh, with it. You get the same thing with Eldad and Medad and Othniel and Gideon and and and. Um, Jephthah and Samson and Elijah, all of them uh, give us similar um, examples of this. But here we're not talking about those. We're talking about one who is far greater, a king who excels all kings. We're talking about the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He'll be given a spirit of wisdom. Right? We read in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. That he is the embodiment. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He is the all-wise God. Or as Paul says, in him are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So that the source of all wisdom is found in the fountain of the Lord Jesus Christ. And flows from the Lord Jesus Christ alone. He has the spirit of wisdom and of understanding. Well, this is absolutely essential for us because we are born fools, 
right? Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, and the rod of correction shall drive it far from him. We're native, in our native condition, we're foolish. We're full of folly. We are desperate for wisdom. Where are we to find it? Not in ourselves, not by doing a deep dive into our own hearts or brains, or even a deep dive into that which is outside of us in human history. It has to be found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this touches every one of you because you face your lack of wisdom on a regular basis in very little things and in big things. You have all the collateral damage in your rearview mirror of, of the evidence of that. You've felt it many, many, many times. And the temptation is to garnish help from our experience, perhaps, to immediately run to other people for their insights, to, 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 to go to books or in our day and age, sadly, to the internet in order to get answers and to solve problems and to find solutions and so on in practical things and theoretical things in things pertaining to the body and temporal things as well as the soul and spiritual things and the lord's coming to us and he's setting before us our king and he's saying here is one who has all the wisdom and so james 1 tells us that if we lack wisdom we're to ask of god and he promises us, right? This is a pledge that he'll give to us wisdom without upbraiding. He's not going to upbraid us for why do you need it? Why are you so foolish? Why don't you know these answers already? Why, why do you have to, you know, face these sort of things? No, there's no upbraiding. The Lord will supply copiously all the wisdom that we need. The problem is are not going to him, are not seeking it from him by faith. But this is what the Lord calls us to, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the spirit of wisdom and of understanding and of counsel and of might. This is the very thing that that unbelieving, rebellious, uh, pagan magistrates are utterly devoid of, absolutely devoid of it. And so they, they make a hash of things every time they turn around. And no wonder they will not have Christ to reign over them and they will not submit to his crown rights, nor will they seek and receive and follow the wisdom that God provides in him, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a train wreck. And so nations as well as people and families as well as churches need to learn that we come to the fountain of Christ for, for wisdom and for understanding and counsel. And all these things are held together with might. So, you know, magistrates, for example, have might. They got tanks and bombs and planes and ammo and all sorts of stuff, right? There's a, a display of physical might there, but without the wisdom, understanding, and counsel to use it. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he has infinite might. He is the almighty king. He is omnipotent. He is the one who is limitless in his power. All of it is brought together in him. And he is able then with that power, coupled with the wisdom, coupled with the understanding to execute his office as a king. And he does so in subduing us, believing souls to himself and ruling over us so that he is a Lord 
to whom we must submit, before whom we must bow, after whom we must follow, right? He rules over us and he destroys. He wipes out all of his and our enemies. This is the great king. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. I've already said twice now, in him are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, right? He is the one who is omniscient, who is the all-knowing Savior, so that he knows the beginning from the end, the top from the bottom. He knows our thoughts before we think them, our words before we speak them. He knows the intricacies and depths of everything that is to be found, not only in the human heart, but in the depths of human experience collectively. He's made everything. He sustains everything. He orders and appoints everything. Does he know the future? He's ordained every last detail of the future. He knows everything. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. As God-man, as the mediator of his people, he has the fear of the Lord. And he's made of quick understanding in the fear of the Lord. As you'll see in your margin, this, this word is very hard in terms of Hebrew to translate. It's suggested it could be sent. And that's, that's legitimate. So the fragrance, if you will, the, the aroma, the perfume of the fear of the Lord, that he exudes this. What's the problem with natural man? There is no fear of God before his eyes. We sang it. We sang it today. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Here is the one upon whom the Spirit dwelt, who has the spirit of the fear of God in all of its fullness. Right? As the God-man. That, that, that consciousness of the transcendent glory and majesty of God, that consciousness of his all-pervasive presence that we live and walk and breathe in the presence of God, that consciousness of all that he demands in terms of his law, and for the believer, the fiducial or believing uh, filial trust that accompanies that in our walk before the Lord. It's seen preeminently in the person of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what one of the consequences by way of application, and then we have to move on. Christ is given the fullness of the Spirit. With it, he's given all of these things that flow from it, the spirit of wisdom, knowledge, understanding, and so on. But that spirit is not kept to himself. The spirit, as it were, is poured out upon the head, and it flows from the head to all the members of the body. And so the ascended Christ pours out his spirit upon his people. We see it in its unique capacity at Pentecost. But the Lord gives the gift of the spirit so that his people, his, those who are brought uh, into union with the Lord Jesus Christ, themselves are indwelt by the Spirit. That's the great gift, right? Two great gifts. The inestimable gift of Christ himself, right? God gives his Son. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. So there's one gift. The other gift, the corresponding and complementary and, and um, in, uh, can't be separated uh, gift is the gift of the Holy Spirit sent from the Father and the Son from heaven. And so we as a consequence, those who are in a state of grace as a consequence 
of being brought into union with Christ or indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and therefore also have a share in this wisdom and understanding and knowledge and counsel and the fear of the Lord and might and so on. We have a share in that, in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are able to enter in uh, to, to all of that. You know, Joel promised that the Spirit was going to be given, among other prophets, to God's people. It's fulfilled in the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and in his, his ministry. And now we live in the open reality of that. So that we who are native-born fools are able to be made wise unto salvation. Even little people, children, right? You know the language. You've, you've heard it so many times. We've prayed it so many times when we pray for you, children. That you would be like Timothy, who through being instructed in the scriptures, that's the means, his grandmother and mother saturating him in the word of God was made wise unto salvation. It were made wise unto salvation. And by the grace of God, we are able to be adorned with divine wisdom and divine knowledge and power that is superhuman, supernatural the power of God at work in the weakness and brokenness of, of pots of clay. The Lord is pleased in order to, to give his people a share in this. And for those of you who are unconverted, this is precisely what you need. This is precisely what you need. Because your unbelief makes you dumb. I don't mean that in an insulting way. I mean it in a far worse way than an insulting way. You're spiritually ignorant incapable of seeing, hearing, knowing, and responding to the truth as it is in Jesus. That's how desperate you are. That's how bankrupt you are. And you think to yourself, you've got the world sorted. You're, you're holding the world by the tail. And you know what life is about, and you know what your goals are and ambitions are. You know what's important. You think that focusing on your body to the neglect of your soul is a genius idea. And we could go on and on all afternoon describing it. Utter folly. Catastrophic folly. And there's no hope for you. Left to yourself. Your only hope is found outside of yourself. Your only hope is found in Jesus Christ who is being set before you in the preaching of his word as a king. Over one who must reign over you, one who must subdue you, one who must save you and redeem you by his grace. And in the gospel, the Lord comes, and that's precisely what he offers you. The Lord comes and he throws open the treasure trove to those who are absolutely poverty-stricken. And he says, here's wealth that will stagger your imagination. It's all found in me. And I'm able to supply to the fullness to, to the full, all that you lack. And so the Lord calls you and says, turn, you know, turn from your folly and your ignorance and your weakness and all the other stuff. Turn from your sin and turn to me, the living God. Turn to me, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the God-man, the Savior. Flee to him, receive him, lay hold of him, come to him. And for the Lord's people who are in a state of grace,
the Lord calls you and me every day of our life to come to him. It's not just the evangelistic call to the unconverted, but he says to us, come, 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 come again, keep coming. We're to come to the Savior, we're to come to the fountain, we're to come to the one who is this shoot that sprung from the roots of Jesse and is anointed by the Spirit. We're to receive of his fullness, grace for grace. But then secondly, his work. Verse, the end of verse 3, And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips, and shall slay the wicked. And righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins, and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. So as the anointed branch as the king. Here is the work that he carries out. Here is the one who is the captain of our salvation, the captain of the Lord's own host, who's been endowed with the Spirit. He carries out this glorious work. He doesn't judge after the sight of eyes and reprove with the hearing of ears, right? This is man's way. Man has to take what he sees, believe what he hears, we read in John 2 that Jesus says he knew what was in man. He knew what others couldn't see. Here is one who is so endowed that he is unlike the judges of this earth, which take evidence, which is broken and you know inadequate and so on, and make judgments based on it, make mistakes. Or who are swayed, who are swayed by bribes, flattery and other things. No, no. The Lord doesn't see the face of a man. He's not altered in his perfect execution of righteous judgment. He can't be duped. He can't be fooled. He can't be coaxed or bribed. There is nothing in anyone, anywhere, that can pervert or steer him from his righteous rule, this work that he carries out. I mean, you see it in a picture, in a small picture with Solomon. Right? The two women come, and there's this argument over the baby, and you know the story well. And Solomon has been given the Spirit, and he's been given what he prayed for in superabundant wisdom. And in this perplexing scenario with who can tell, who can actually render judgment here, Solomon demonstrates that wisdom. Right? Bring me the sword, I'll cut it in half and give each half to each of you. And the mother whose baby it is says, no, 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 no. Give her the baby. Let her keep the baby. And he says, you're the, wife. You're, the, you're the mother. Right? So you have a picture of that. But Solomon obviously was foolish. And we see it throughout the length of his reign, especially latterly. Not so. A greater than Solomon is here, Jesus tells us. Speaking of himself, one who is greater than Solomon here is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In righteousness, he'll judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek. The poor and the, the meek are often the most downtrodden. They're the most overlooked. They're the most swept aside. They're the ones who suffer most of all from all of the, the garbage that governments do. And it, it's true at so many levels. I mean, not just in the court system, 
you know, the, 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 the I can't afford a rabbit trail, but the government, the government will set monetary policy. It is the poorest of the poor that suffer from that, that abomination that the Bible calls modern monetary policy. My point is, it's far and wide, not so with Jesus. He came to preach the gospel to the poor. He came to the, he came to the tax collectors and the prostitutes and sat down with them. He, he, he proclaimed to them the glorious riches of his grace as the Savior King who could redeem them to the uttermost. And the poor heard him gladly. They rejoiced over all that he proclaimed. We're told, and we have to hasten on here, notice the language of verse 4, because I think this is important as you're comparing Scripture with Scripture. It says there, He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. You know, when you're reading reflectively, meditatively through these Old Testament prophets, you're doing so with an eye to how they're going to be used in the New Testament. One example is this passage, Isaiah 11.4. Because we turn to 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2, and there we have the famous chapter on the rise of the man of sin, which is speaking of the papacy. And we can show that, you know, exegetically and irrefutably, I think. But you come down in the reading of that, of that text about the man of sin, and you come to verse 8, then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord, listen to the language, shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, could be translated the breath of his mouth, and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Two things. He's going to smite him with the rod of his mouth and destroy him with the brightness of his coming. That language of the, the spirit of his mouth is language that's taken from here in Isaiah. It's a reference to preaching. It's a reference to the fact that the Lord will smite the man of sin through the proclamation of the gospel. That Jesus the King comes and he's smiting the earth with the rod of his mouth. This is the description of the preaching of God's word and of, of the gospels. You come, of course, to Revelation 1. And there in chapter 16 we read, And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. So this is the picture. The Lord doing battle through the arsenal of his word, slaying the wicked. Right? It says, with the breath of his lips. I've made this point before, so I won't develop it here, but isn't it absolutely divine wisdom that when the Lord set forth his arsenal and he appointed his ordinances that it included preaching preaching is the epitome of weakness as I've said before preaching is breath speaking what's weaker than breath and yet the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and it's through the foolishness of preaching that the dead are raised and that those who are in bondage to sin are delivered and brought to life. It's through this outwardly weak ordinance that Christ not only is prophet, that's true, perhaps first of all, but also as king is reigning through the proclamation of his, his word. And of course, this will be true at the last day too, won't it? When we're assembled before that judgment, the bar of justice, the throne upon which Jesus Christ sits, it will be his word. 
and his word is what will be last. His say, his verdict, whether it be depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting darkness, it'll be the proclamation of Christ's word which will effect the thing spoken. So that the devil and his host and every reprobate soul from Adam to the end of time will by the word of Jesus Christ be sent into the lake of fire and everlasting punishment. And it's by his word that he will say, enter ye into the joy of the Lord. It's his word that it will affect it on the last day as well at judgment. We're told in verse 5, righteousness shall be the girdle of his loins and faithfulness the girdle of his reins. And so he's, he's girded up, he's braced, as it were, in all of this work that he's carrying out. And he's braced with righteousness and faithfulness. If we had time, we could go and look at Ephesians 6. And there you have the belt, right, described in the arsenal of the Christian. And that's drawn from various places, this idea of, being, of the belt or of being girded, braced for, for action, strength, right? We, we, we understand this notion of strength. You know, when you go to deadlift a barbell with heavy weight, you often put a fat leather belt around you. Why? People think, well, that's so it's, it's protect your, you know, it's going to somehow brace your back. No. It is so that when you tighten your loins, when you tighten everything in your core, it has something to push against, to tighten with, in order to strengthen the trunk to then lift up uh, the weight. This is the picture that's given, right? He's, he's girt about. He has this girdle around uh, his loins, and it is righteousness, right doing, and faithfulness, doing what he's promised, delivering what he's promised both righteous and faithful. When we think of, you know, confessing our sins, we think of 1 John 1. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we must hasten on now. Thirdly, the effect of this work the effect of this work. Verses 6 to 8, very graphic, colorful language. The children sit up and notice this um, quite easily. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, and the calf, and the young lion, and the fatling together, and a child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the, of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Here we see that the kingdom and reign of Jesus Christ is one of exquisite peace. He is the king of Salem, the king of peace. He is the prince of peace, as we saw in chapter 9. Uh, verse 6. He is the one who brings peace in his wake. He, he, in and through his reign, establishes peace, peace with God, the peace of God. He, he, he creates peacemakers and the ability for there to be peace among men as, as well. And this stands out, not, I mean, first of all, in the immediate context, war, rumors of war, the wreckage of past wars, upheaval, 
people hauled away into captivity, you know, walls broken down to rubble, cities burned, people killed, blood spilt, right? That's the, that's the background for what's being spoken here, right? The earth soaked in blood, drinking in the blood of war. But it's actually the background of the world at large all the time, isn't it? It's, it's war and rumors of war all the time around the world. Travesties that happen, unjust wars and all sorts of things that are un unfolding. Genocides and, and, and the like. It's war. Here is a king who comes with peace. Earthly kings love war. They have a penchant for it. They gravitate toward it. Pride, power, prestige, all that feeds it. Money feeds it in a big, big way. All sorts of other motivations uh, feed the lust for unjust war. Here is the king who comes, yes, to wage war as a king, but to, in waging war to bring peace. War with the devil, war with sin, war with death, war with hell, defeating, trouncing, vanquishing, all of his enemies in order to bring peace. So in Colossians 2, right, he, even on the cross, when it looks as if it's defeat, he's actually spoiling principalities and powers as the great king of, of all his people. And so here the Lord's coming, he's saying in very colorful language, which is um, figurative, describing this point, which is he comes with a reign of exquisite peace. The, there's a change from all the savagery, right? You, we, we read uh, about Assyria earlier and its injustices and its pride and all of that. The savagery that comes as a result of that. There's a change of scenes with this king. There's peace that comes. And so look at the language, right? You have, you'll notice here that wild animals and domesticated animals are consorting together. So normally you would think, okay, the cow and the, you know, the domestic animals that are part of the household, the lamb and so on, raised for food or whatever, they're one thing. And then the wild animals are the threat. You know, it's the wolves and the leopards and the lions that come and break through and get in and, you know, eat the lambs and carry them away, the goats and so on and so forth. Here, the wild animals and the domesticated animals are actually brought together. And even the, the meat-eating animals are, are described as, as, as transformed, right? You have the lion that's eating straw like an ox. And so meat-eaters are made vegetarians. Um, we're told that children who are very vulnerable uh, to, to danger in these circumstances are in a condition where they can play with what would otherwise have killed them. What's happening here? You have a picture of paradise. That's what's happening. You have a picture of paradise. You have a picture of the Lord coming and he's taking the curse that's come with the fall. And he is, as it were, rolling that curse back. He's, he's unwinding the curse through the redemption that is secured in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you go to places like Romans 8, and it's, it's, it's spoken of, you know, there, beginning in 
verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature, the created thing, waiteth for the manifestations of the Son of God. The creature is subject to vanity by reason of whom that subjected him. The creature itself shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. The whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. This is the world living under the curse of sin, which was brought to pass by man. And here is the one who is the God-man, the Savior, the Redeemer, the King, who comes in order to answer that, resolve that, deliver from that, reverse that, so that blessings abound wherever and however the curse has been manifested. Even violence among men are brought to an end. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. So Christ comes and the reign of Christ and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, that eternal kingdom is so diametrically opposed to everything else that we know, so unlike everything else that we know. We're used to kings and, and, and presidents and, and um, prime ministers and whoever else, they get power for themselves. And they use the people, they fleece the people for themselves. Here is the king who comes and gives everything. Gives himself, withholds not himself. Gives everything for the benefit of his people. And that in, with him we have all things freely. So that he provides everything that's needed from our daily bread to an inheritance that endures in heaven forever. Everything in between. He provides all of this out of his fullness. What we need is the advance of this kingdom over which Christ himself is king. You know, nations that are broken apart by all sorts of upheaval, the answer to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And missionaries go as publishers of peace, proclaimers of the gospel of peace. And the Prince of Peace comes through that publication of the gospel of peace, and he, he brings sinners into peace with himself and thereby peace with one another and the peace of God that is within them. And we can say they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. In Zion, in the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, that holy mountain of which we sing in Psalm 27 and 36, which we sang, and 65 and so on. The holy mountain is the place where there is communion with God where we behold him in his glory, where we commune with him and have fellowship with him. It's in his holy mountain, right? That the glory of heaven itself that we ascend by means of the Lord Jesus Christ. There in communion with God, the believer is made an instrument of peace, a peacemaker, one who makes peace. Out of that communion with God flows peacemaking missions among men. And then the end of verse 9, the last effect, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, have the same language in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, for the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory, in that case it says, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. 
Here is the Lord describing the spread of Christ's kingdom over the entire face of the earth. That when Jesus said, go teach all nations, publish the gospel, preach it to every creature under heaven, it wasn't just some whimsical thinking that this might be a good idea, who knows what will happen. But it was with a view that the Lord who has all power and authority in heaven and on earth would actually make it efficacious. That he would see himself to it. That the knowledge of his glory would cover the earth as the waters even cover the sea. Think back to the language of Numbers 14, verse 21. And as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. This is our expectation, not because we want it to be or we kind of need the hope that it will be or because we think it might be possible. We're absolutely certain that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, that the nations will be discipled, that there are days ahead yet for great expanse and, and victory and fruitfulness for the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ solely and only because God hath said and he cannot lie. And therefore, you can hang everything in your life on it in absolute certainty and confidence that it will be the case. The foundation of peace will not be destroyed, but rather expanded. And all of this sets us up, right? So this expectation of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as waters cover the sea sets us up for verse 10 and following. Because in verses 10 and following, he then goes on to describe for us what that means, what that's going to include, all of which is explicitly tied to what we're told in the New Testament about the restoration of Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles being brought in. And so if the Lord spares us, we will give ourselves to that next Lord's Day. May the Lord help us as we reflect upon the glory of our King, Sten. O Lord, our God in heaven, we bow down before thy majesty and confess that we wonder at the beauty of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. We wonder at all that belongs to it, all that is promised to the kingdom, all that yet lies away ahead for her. O Lord, give us a sense of hope, just as surely as those in Isaiah's day were to receive this with faith and for their hearts to be buoyed up, so likewise grant that we would do the same. And we do pray, O Lord, subdue us unto thyself, all here. Grant that thou wouldst reign over us as our Savior King. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.